KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, March 29th. How equality between men and women in the Marine Corps remains elusive. We'll have more on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. The first 500 unaccompanied migrant children have arrived at the San Diego Convention Center this weekend. Here's San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria. We know that San Diego is a welcoming community, and we don't mean that just in words, but we mean that by our actions and by our deeds. These are children. This is the right thing to do, and San Diegans will always do the right thing. Local leaders say the convention center will only shelter teenaged girls. South Bay Community Services will be on site to help the girls find their families in the U.S. or connect them with sponsors. Opening day for the Padres is this Thursday, and ticket prices are skyrocketing. Mariel Concepcion is with the San Diego Business Journal. She says on StubHub, ticket prices were between $1,400 and $2,000. But the reason these tickets are exceptionally pricey is because of the 20% limited capacity regulation. The Padres' opening day opponent is the Arizona Diamondbacks. And San Diego Comic-Con has announced dates for their three-day in-person convention this year. They're calling it Comic-Con Special Edition. And for now, it's scheduled for the Thanksgiving Black Friday weekend of November 26th through the 28th. There's still a free virtual version of Comic-Con called Comic-Con at Home, scheduled for July 23rd through the 25th. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. For the first time, the Marine Corps has fully opened both of its boot camps to women. The first female recruits arrived in San Diego last month at a camp that since 1923 had only trained men. Women will also continue to train at the Marine Corps' other facility at Paris Island in South Carolina. But KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh tells us integrating boot camp is just one of the hurdles in bringing gender equality to the Corps. The first class of female recruits are a third of the way through training in San Diego. Part of a congressionally mandated march to become the last service to integrate boot camp. They've gone through pool exercises and scaled obstacles in the confidence course. One obstacle for their leaders, keeping these women once they prove themselves and then finding more like them women who want to become U.S. Marines. It's a profound transformation. Leah Booth was a Marine from 2004 to 2009. I got to say I had a blast at boot camp. It's super hard. Obviously, it's physical. It's it's challenging. You don't get a ton of sleep. You're always on the move. Everybody loses weight. Women make up to close to 20% of the Navy. The number of women in the Marines is just under half of that. Despite foot dragging on integrating boot camp, the last two commandants of the Marine Corps have publicly vowed to increase the number of women in the Corps. 
Booth says one reason why there aren't more women is many of the most recognizable jobs or MOSs in the Marines had been closed to women. You can do every job that a guy does with a few exceptions in the Air Force. But the main MOS in the Marine Corps, women couldn't do up until really recently. So I'm sure that's part of it. The Corps is also the only service to fight the Secretary of Defense's decision to open up all combat roles to women in 2015. Compared with the Army, a relative handful of women have combat roles in the Marines. I try to stay as much out of the office as I can. Sergeant Leah Engel is one of a few female Marine recruiters. Most Marines come right out of high school. Their image of the Corps comes straight out of video games. Call of Duty and things like that, seeing what's on TV. Most Marines won't spend their career in the once-restricted combat roles. The image actually makes it harder to recruit a broader pool of women. Recruiters often spend months getting both men and women into shape before they ship out. One of Engdahl's recruits is among the first class of women training in San Diego. She kind of had it set in her mind that she wanted to be a United States Marine. She just was a little bit concerned uh, about maybe the physical aspect of things. And the way that I prepared her was we would actually meet here at the office uh, twice to three times a week and we would physically train to get ready. Marines and veterans say the bond that starts at boot camp lasts a lifetime, even through hardship and sometimes even through betrayal. Julie Weber started serving in 1996. In my first duty station, I was raped and I was not supported by anybody in my unit, at least nobody whose opinion mattered. The specter of sexual assault looms over the Marines, which typically lead the services in the number of assault and harassment allegations. Weber has a tattoo on her forearm of the globe and anchor, the symbol of the Marines. She says she got it after she left the Corps in 2012, after a second enlistment. As she struggled through law school, she wanted a daily reminder of what she could accomplish. I try to support people who need it. And I don't think I was always this way, but the Marine Corps kind of made me that way. And I am strong because of them. The Marines warrior tradition is built at boot camp. Advocates say integrating the sexes is an opportunity for the Corps to finally recognize that the strength and determination instilled in the beginning doesn't just apply to the men. And that was KPBS military reporter Steve Walsh. This story was produced by the American Homefront Project, a public media collaboration that reports on American military life and veterans. Funding comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. In a tragic accident in January, a young hiker was swept away in the San Diego River when he was fleeing a storm at Mission Trails Regional Park. KPBS reporter John Carroll tells us how the man's parents are working to make sure what happened to their son never happens again. If Balboa Park is the jewel of San Diego, the vast Mission Trails Regional Park is the city's diamond in the rough. One thing that makes the park so beautiful is the fact a river runs through it, the San Diego River. So beautiful, and yet here, for hikers, bikers, and anyone else traversing Jackson Crossing, there is danger. On January 29th, an attempt to cross the river turned deadly for 21-year-old Brown University student Max Lanai. It was his third run at Mission Trails as he was training for an ultramarathon with his brother. Max was no amateur. He knew what he was doing. 
But an unusually strong rain and hailstorm had whipped up quickly, leaving Max with a choice. He could either cross the river and get to shelter in his car, five minutes away, or he could go back the way he came. But that would be six miles in a hailstorm, so he decided to cross. All these weeks later, Ben Lanai and Laura Yoler just today received the medical examiner's report, and with it confirmation of what happened to their beloved Max, he drowned. So he tried to cross, you know, at the crossing, uh, and uh, and and basically was, you know, kept under the surface by the current in some sort of eddy or whirlpool. Now Ben Lanai and Lori Euler are turning their unspeakable grief into action. With the help of the San Diego Foundation, they're raising money to build a beautiful bridge over the crossing. We're so adamant that something has to be done to make it safer or someone else is going to face a similar tragedy. The fact that a bridge is needed here is not news to groups associated with the park. Yoler says the Mission Trails Regional Park Foundation has been pressing for one for at least 10 years. But they had said there was not enough funding to go forth with the project. And that's why we... uh, We want to help rectify that situation. Two million dollars is what they figure it'll cost. The goal is to have the bridge complete by three years from today. You see, this is Max's birthday. He would have been 22. We're righting a wrong here. Uh, We're making sure that no other family will have the same experience. And that was reporting from KPBS's John Carroll. Defendants throughout California can no longer be held in jail simply because they can't afford to post bail. That's after a landmark state Supreme Court ruling last Thursday. Criminal justice reformers are hailing the ruling, arguing that cash bail is inherently unfair. But as KQED's Alex Emsley reports, the ruling doesn't abolish its use. Instead, trial court judges are now barred from setting bail higher than defendants can afford to pay. And unless a defendant poses a clear and convincing chance of skipping court or reoffending, judges must consider alternatives to pretrial detention, such as ankle monitors. I'm over the moon. State Senator Robert Hertzberg's efforts to abolish cash bail were overturned in a referendum last election. He hailed the Supreme Court's ruling. It doesn't end money bail, but it ends the injustice of money bail. Hertzberg noted that California's median bail is five times that of the rest of the country. He has a new bill in the state Senate that would set bail at zero for most low-level offenses. University of San Francisco law professor Laura Bazelon says bail often disproportionately harms the poor and people of color. Those are the people generally who are not able to be released, not able to fight their case, not able to pay their rent, whose families spiral into a circle of poverty. And that system that we've had for so long is not only racist, it's a driver of mass incarceration. A spokesperson for the California Bail Agents Association said the ruling was long anticipated and fair. And that was KQED's Alex Emsley. Coming up, while unaccompanied migrant children arrive at the San Diego Convention Center, misinformation at the southern border has been spiking. We'll have that story and a look at how drinking alcohol spiked throughout 2020 next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon. Hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Hundreds of people are still camped out at the port of entry in Tijuana, hoping to request asylum. And asylum-seeking migrant children have arrived in the San Diego Convention Center. The border, once again, is in the headlines, and where there's headlines, there's been misinformation. In recent weeks, MAGA supporters in Tijuana have been stirring up their allies in the U.S. with conspiracy theories and misinformation about the southern border, and they're antagonizing those waiting to seek asylum. Jean Guerrero is covering misinformation at the border for the Daily Beast, and she spoke with KPBS host Maya Trabolsi. Here's that interview. Now, before we dive into your story, let's get your, your general reaction to the news here in San Diego that the convention center will be used as a temporary shelter for unaccompanied minors. Do you believe that this is going to ease the situation? Absolutely. I mean, I I think that the government is obviously having some capacity issues in part because of the huge backlog of, you know, asylum seekers having to wait for their turn to enter the United States under the Trump administration and finally some of them being allowed through. And I think the San Diego Convention Center, because of its very large space, is going to help ease some of those capacity issues that Border Patrol is having. One, one thing that I thought of, though, is, you know, that that was actually the site of one of the biggest uh, clashes between Trump supporters and Trump uh, opponents in back in t- 2016 when Trump had a rally at the convention center. So I know that some advocates are concerned about, you know, potential bad actors being attracted to the convention center, but I'm sure that the city is going to be taking that into consideration and, and having security in place. Let's get into why this migrant story has taken off most recently. What has changed from what we've seen at the border in recent years? Well, so the change is the, the Biden administration is trying to implement a more humanitarian approach at the border. He's, he's trying to scale back some of these really draconian policies that Trump put into place that targeted asylum seekers, that targeted children, that targeted families. Um, he's doing so very, very slowly, though. Uh, so one of the things that one of the few things that he's actually rolled back so far is uh, this decision that the Trump administration made to turn away children as a result of the pandemic. So. Biden has kept the Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, rule that allows the government to turn back families. He's kept that in place. So they're still turning away most families who present at the U.S.-Mexico border and most adults. But he decided that it isn't humane and it isn't safe to be turning back children to danger uh, just because of the pandemic. And so that is why we are seeing a slight uptick in the number of children who are currently in Border Patrol custody. There are some capacity issues, even though there is a lot more space than there used to be to house these children uh, because of the pandemic and the need to maintain a safe distance between people, a lot of this space isn't able to be used. And this is why uh, we're seeing the need for temporary shelters, such as at at the convention center. Your story for The Daily Beast gets into how right-wing social media influencers are trying to leverage this story for the MAGA audience. One of those is Paloma Zuniga, known as Paloma for Trump. How does she go beyond just commentary and into these asylum camps directly confronting these asylum seekers? 
So she has been going and uh, antagonizing the asylum seekers for years now. I mean, she gained a very large following, more than 70,000 followers under the Trump administration. Uh, She was involved in a a clash in which rocks and epithets were hurled at the Central Americans back in, I believe it was 2018. Then in 2019, she was caught on camera uh, actually chasing and, and physically shoving a migrant child who was trying to enter the United States with his father uh, to request asylum. She screamed at him that he was not welcome. She didn't want him here. She's since apologized for that incident. She says that a, de- a demon, a quote unquote demon entered her and, and forced her to do that. Um, but she remains a problematic figure. My reporting shows, you know, she was just very recently at the migrant camp filming uh, the asylum seekers in Tijuana against their will, you know, they asked her to please stop broadcasting their images. Many of them do not feel safe having their locations broadcast. They're fleeing death threats. They're fe- fleeing gang violence. They, they do not feel safe in northern Mexico. And so they requested that she stop filming and she refused. She continued filming. She said she had the right because she was on a public street. Um, and, you know, it, it turned pretty tense, that that exchange. And, and she uses those videos and those um, antagonistic confrontations to create hysteria, to whip up hysteria in the United States about the asylum seekers. Let's talk about another one of these influencers. His name is Oscar Ramirez. You reported that he is a convicted drug trafficker who was subsequently deported. Then in April 2020, he was allowed back into the country as an essential worker in spite of his inadmissible status as a felon. You mentioned even for families with no criminal record, this is almost impossible. How do you suspect that this happened? Yeah, I mean, when you look at the families who are allowed to actually uh, pursue their asylum claims in the United States, families without any criminal records, you know, the very small percentage are actually uh, they are actually allowed into the United States. But somehow Oscar Ramirez, despite the fact that that federal immigration law says that someone convicted of a drug trafficking conviction uh, is inadmissible to the United States. He somehow was able to re-enter the United States repeatedly under the Trump administration to broadcast alongside Marjorie, uh, the Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene's allies in the United States, some some longtime friends of hers who are who, who collaborate with U.S. right wing media, particularly one network called Real America's Voice. Um, the only way that he would have been able to do this is if he had obtained a very hard to get waiver, uh, either from the Attorney General himself. Uh, or someone very high up in the State Department or the Department of Homeland Security. I reached out to these agencies and, you know, the State Department declined to comment because of privacy protections and the others simply did not return my requests for comment. Ramirez himself uh, told me that he he was able to get a visa under the Trump administration, but he declined to give details as to how he obtained that. Um, in fact, he became very agitated when I when I pressed him for details and then told me to be careful, um, saying that he knows all of the journalists in Mexico and accusing the Daily Beast of, of promoting child trafficking by trying to look into his past. But um, but yeah, I mean, it, it would he would need political connections, or he would need to be working as an informant. So I'm not sure which which one is true of him. But there's some speculation that his close partnerships with Marjorie Taylor Greene's longtime friends may have played a role. He even seems to flaunt his position 
yes, he, he flaunts the fact that he's able to re-enter the U.S. But he, even though the border is closed to all but essential traffic, he was in just a couple of, you know, he was he was in this week uh, just visiting, uh, you know, the, the USS Midway uh, and broadcasting there. So he, he's 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 flaunting the fact that he can get into the United States. In your article, you also point to people with white supremacist ideals utilizing people of color as shields against any kind of criticism. Can you talk to us about how these individuals like Ramirez are being used to push right wing political sentiment? without being accused of being racist. Yeah, so I mean, Ramirez in particular, he has been appearing regularly on the US right-wing media network, Real America's Voice. He's been featured repeatedly on Steve Bannon's new show called The War Room. Um, and this is something that is very common, you know, that this, this use of, you know, brown and black allies in the far right community as shields against criticism. You know, it's this idea that people of color or Latinos cannot be racist, despite the established problem of colorism and internalized white supremacy in these communities. But it's it's a longtime strategy, you know, in my book about Stephen Miller, the Trump senior advisor and speechwriter, one of his closest friendships was with Larry Elder, a Los Angeles-based Black man who argues that Black people are more racist than white people and that racism against communities of color is a figment of the left's imagination. And Larry Elder told me that, you know, he believes that because of the fact that he is Black, he's allowed many people like Stephen Miller, many white men to, to, you know, more confidently express their racist beliefs um, without being perceived or seen as racist. Your story includes how social media platforms are pol policing this sort of content. And Paloma Zuniga had her Facebook account actually shut down in 2019, but she since launched a new one. Is this simply a matter of freedom of speech? Does this sort of content cross a line at some point? Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a matter of, of misinformation that is being branded as objective news. Obviously, people have the right to express their opinions. The reason that this content is incredibly problematic is that, you know, both of these individuals, but especially Oscar Ramirez, who goes by Oscar L. Blue, they, they brand themselves as, as live streaming accurate and objective content. And the fact of the matter is that it's, it's, it's not at all that. It's, you know, it's conspiracy theories, da dangerous conspiracy theories, and also just a use of very negative stereotypes to, to turn public opinion against very vulnerable populations. And, and it's problematic because, you know, it, it, it interferes with our democracy. It interferes with the safety of not only the asylum seekers who are seeking refuge in the, in the United States, but Latino communities and, and other communities of color across the United States. That was Jean Guerrero, investigative reporter for The Daily Beast, speaking with KPBS host Maya Travolsi. With the COVID-19 pandemic forcing people to stay home, alcohol consumption increased nationwide. A new study found alcohol consumption rose by 14% last year, with a staggering 41% increase among women. Dr. Rohit Lumba specializes in gastroenterology and liver diseases at UC San Diego Health. He spoke with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Kavanaugh about the recent rise in alcoholism among younger people 
people in San Diego and how it could expose them to dangerous health issues in the future. Have you experienced an increase in patients with alcoholic liver disease during the pandemic? Yes, um, we have a group of eight hepatologists at uh, UC San Diego, and uh, we are definitely seeing a big increase in patients who are excessively consuming alcohol. And then the severe form of it, including alcoholic hepatitis, uh, acute pancreatitis related to excessive alcohol use, and then those patients who have uh, decompensated liver disease that need liver transplantation. So those rates are increasing nationally and uh, particularly in San Diego. Have you seen a change then in the age or circumstances of the people who are coming in with liver problems? Yes. Uh, what we observed, and these are anecdotal experiences, but confirmed by national studies, as you just mentioned, that uh, now we are seeing patients who you know, used to have a normal life maybe consumed, you know, one to two drinks every day, but suddenly because of the pandemic, lost a job or a family member, some major life event happened that caused a trigger for these, you know, normal individuals who then start increasing their consumption of alcohol and then get into trouble without really realizing that this could be harmful to them. And this is the particular section of the society that I think is increasing where they had no idea that they could be in trouble because of alcohol. And now they need uh, admission to the hospital, they're having GI bleed or need a liver transplantation. And are the, the people that you're seeing perhaps younger or are, are they skewing female or anything of, of the, that nature? Yeah, we're definitely seeing um, alcoholic hepatitis uh, to be happening in younger and younger age groups. Uh, we're seeing individuals in their uh, late 20s, early 30s, and 40s who are presenting with acute alcoholic hepatitis. And this, I think, it has been rising even before the pandemic, and then just pandemic added fuel to the fire. We're also seeing increased number of women presenting with uh, alcoholic hepatitis, but in San Diego, we're seeing it across the board. Uh, and it's particularly important here uh, because of uh, Hispanic ethnicity being a risk factor for fatty liver disease. I think lots of people wonder how much alcohol puts their health at risk. Does that amount differ from person to person? Uh, this is an important question, and there are many ways of looking into it. If you ask a liver doctor that what is the risk of liver-related mortality, then, you know, daily consumption of alcohol increases your risk for liver-related mortality, although just slightly. What is particularly damaging is something called as binge drinking. This is really something to be completely avoided. It's harmful across the board, particularly harmful in those patients or individuals who are overweight and obese. What is binge drinking? It is consuming six drinks for men within four to six hours and four drinks for women within four to six hours. And so that's really bad for the liver and general health, and that absolutely must be avoided. And doctor, what does too much alcohol do to the liver? You drink excessively, puts fat in the liver, cells start dying, they secrete inflammatory cytokines, leading to scarring in the liver, leading to cirrhosis of the liver if it continues unabated long-term. Is there any way to reverse the damage? Absolutely. There are many ways of reversing the damage, but one thing that definitely works, even in the setting of cirrhosis, if you completely quit or abstain from alcohol, you can reverse this disease. 
and you can reduce the risk of complications as well as decompensation. So number one is completely abstaining from alcohol if you get in trouble. How do you do that? I think really identifying issues related to excessive alcohol use, they might be related to depression, anxiety, certain triggers in life, and potentially could be improved with therapy, alcohol anonymous, as well as family and psychosocial support. There are also treatments available for alcohol use disorder, because particularly that's where if you have difficulty in maintaining the uh, moderate amount of alcohol intake and you have uh, excessive alcohol use, then you probably want to see a de-addiction psychiatrist who can help you reduce your alcohol consumption. And that way you can reduce the risk of end organ damage. That's what we call when you develop cirrhosis of the liver or pancreatitis and uh, inflammation in the pancreas. So treatment of alcohol use disorders would be important, and that is available where you could be offered psychotherapy or certain medications that would reduce your risk for excessive drinking. And what are the consequences to a person's health of not addressing the issue and not getting help to stop drinking? I think there are a lot of consequences in terms of liver disease, you know, development of cirrhosis, or something called as alcoholic hepatitis. When patients uh, develop jaundice, which is yellow color of the eye and skin, they may develop confusion, may come into the hospital with vomiting of blood. And sometimes, you know, patients develop life-threatening infections and may die. Once you develop alcoholic hepatitis, risk of mortality goes up to about 50% over um, 90 days. So it's a fatal disease unless you stop drinking alcohol completely and you can get supportive nutritional care. Other adverse health effects include acute pancreatitis as well as chronic pancreatitis, where patients develop severe abdominal pain related to excessive alcohol use, leading to inflammation in the pancreas, and that can also be life-threatening in some individuals. And then we know that alcohol use also causes certain kinds of cancers, including liver cancer. And don't some people actually need liver transplants? Yes. We have seen nationally, and especially here in San Diego, number of patients presenting need for liver transplantation has increased, especially related to alcoholic liver disease and alcoholic hepatitis. And do you expect to see more patients with liver disease finally come in for treatment as the pandemic threat continues to decrease? Absolutely. We are already seeing uh, this, and we've started some outreach in South Bay as well as in Imperial County in El Centro, because we really think that if you see liver disease mortality rates are significantly higher in San Diego and Imperial County. Also, liver cancer rates are also about two times higher in San Diego and Imperial County than an average county in the United States. Why is that? And I think it may be because of Uh, Hispanic uh, ethnicity predominantly in our two counties, as well as rampant diabetes, obesity, and on top of it, uh, potentially alcohol use combined with uh, the risk of liver disease due to diabetes. And all of these metabolic problems with alcohol use is, uh, you know, adding uh, fuel to the fire and leading to excessive liver disease-related morbidity and mortality. So I do expect more and more patients to come. That was Dr. Rohit Lumba, a specialist in gastroenterology and liver diseases at UC San Diego Health. He was speaking with KPBS Midday Edition host Maureen Cavanaugh. 
And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio, or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.